Join us once again on Core Ideas, a podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. As always, my name is Adam Jaziorski, joined with my good friend, Josh Steampont. Hey, what's up? So, I think it's time to start a new arc. We've wrapped up contagious ideas. Yeah. I think pandemic uh, is not wrapped up. No. I think many of our listeners probably would would you know may have enjoyed some of the are they digressions or different topics uh but it, it may be time yeah tangents for sure it may be time to go back to something a little bit more directly related to paleolimnology though so transfer functions part two transfer functions part yeah reconstructions deconstructed <laughs> again yeah um nah. no we'll, we'll get back to that we'll get back to those more technical topics in a little bit uh, but I think maybe we should we should not get so quickly into the details. Let's have a little bit more of a general discussion about paleolimnology and where it came from, maybe. Okay. Can we do that in one episode? Well, of course we could. It would just be a <laughs> several hour long episode. Um, so probably best not to okay. and uh, slice it up in over a couple of weeks. Mm. And... Uh, because one one of my um, like I guess we're very close to the start of this of the school year, new semester, and one of the traditions, at least in the Pearl Lab, is that John gives his talk uh, a brief history of paleomnology, where he gives some background to the new graduate students joining the lab. Which he first put together, I think, as a conference presentation for the pals, the one of the very first pals conferences. I think it might actually be the, the yeah the very first one. Yeah. So, yeah, he has this, this long, not long, but this detailed uh, history of paleolimnology that he has a nice slideshow deck associated with. And I, I've seen he it acquired. a bunch of times and always enjoy it. Yeah, happily, uh, <laughs> having access to him, we have access to it. And therefore, saddle up. It's time for yep. part one of uh, history of paleolimnology. Yeah, so again... Um, laying it all out there, we used his slide and his talk as the basis of what we think will be a short series of episodes. Not sure exactly how many it will be, um, but we're allowed to go in a little bit more detail and explore tangents as we are want to do on this show. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think the place to begin is where is the beginning? Uh, it's a really ambiguous question, and, but an interesting one. Uh, at what point is a field of science become its own thing? Like, where is the starting point for paleolimnology? That's a really tough question. Yeah. I mean, for some sciences, that's probably a little bit more straightforward to define the starting of physics, modern physics, you could pick the starting of modern chemistry, even where, you know, you could have those discussions. But when you have a synthetic science like paleolimnology, where do you draw the line? Um, yeah, that's a tough one to, to, to think about. Um, Let's start with what is paleolimnology? Uh, what are we trying to find the beginning of? Remind ourselves what we're, where we're going. Okay. So for those new to this show, um, uh, we've defined paleolimnology a couple places in a couple different uh, shows and on the website. And we use the definition, paleolimnology is the interdisciplinary science that reconstructs the paleo environments of inland waters. Um, 
So basically using lake sediments to uh, reconstruct the ecological or chemical or physical history of lakes going back in time. Um, and so there are a couple different angles in terms of where does paleolimnology start? Like one kind of surface answer would be um, it starts whenever the lake was formed. And that, that can be right. uh, uh, quite a variable number. So in yeah, places that's... that were glaciated, you know, the sediment record starts approximately 10,000 years ago. Yeah, that's, you could think of it as almost the geological definition of uh, the origin of paleolimnology, going back to when the stratigraphic records started to stratify and started to build up. That's, that's an argument. Uh, but that's not maybe the most useful for, you know, our perspective of trying to study the lakes you go back 10,000 years plus in some locations, it's not really the, you know, the way in which you can start to discuss what's going on in that location. So I think that's, that's an interesting start, but not nuanced enough. No, there weren't too many cave person paleolimnologists, let's say. <laughs> no, probably not that many. I mean, we, we you never know uh, until our time machines are ready. We won't be positive, but I think we can say that that's likely. All right, then. Um, another angle would be looking at, uh, as we talked about in our secret societies, our scientific societies episode, uh, the be when the International Paleolimnology Association came into being. And it adopted its formal constitution in 2006 uh, at the 10th International Paleolimnology Symposium, funnily enough. That took place in Duluth, Minnesota. In Duluth, Minnesota. Well, nothing can be formed in Duluth, Minnesota. So I don't know that we can, uh, <laughs> in terms of the origin of the science. But uh, I'm not sure we can define the beginning of paleolimnology as occurring after both of us started studying it. So I think that's a little too recent. We got to find something in between 10,000 years and 14 years. We've got a good range there, so we can we can figure something out. We'll we'll, we'll get there. Let's keep right. working. Okay. Um, we've also done an episode on journals. Hmm. So the Journal of Paleoanthropology released issue one of volume one in July 1988. Okay. So, so we've, I don't think you're studying it then. Were you born yet? I I was uh, three and a half years old. Uh, so that. Solved that problem. Adam was a little <laughs> bit older. Um, but we do know some people who were studying paleolimnology. <laughs> we were going to try, uh, for example, we're using some of his slides. Um, and we're going to try and get him on the podcast not too distant future. So I, I think we could just use the same thing, but from John's perspective and say, you can't start something after you've already been doing it. So okay. we got we got to go further back. All right then. So oh yeah yeah making this difficult. Yeah. So the science I guess would theoretically predate the journal if a journal if there's interest in forming a journal. That's a good point too. Dedicated to it. Um and if the association was formed at the 10th International Paleolimnology Symposium how about we use the first international paleolimnology symposium as our starting point? And it took place in 1967 in Tahani, Hungary. 
that's that's getting i think we're getting closer i think uh that's that's not a bad place to start you you might be able to find people who would make that argument that that's the case but i i would say that your your statement about the journal kind of needing to have enough people working in that topic to form a journal probably applies to a meeting as well if you don't have enough paleolimnologists how do you have a paleolimnology meeting uh so it's got to be earlier than that but how much earlier when where do we well, where do we where do we start i don't know like you're shooting all my ideas down we want to establish real beginning but how far back do you want to take it because it's where you know paleo brings together all kinds of disciplines I'm talking my, microscopy, taxonomy, sedimentology, dating, the actual mechanics of retrieving sediment cores, all sorts of mathy stuff that I only like uh, kind of understand. Um, and a lot of these things were developed simultaneously, cross-pollinating each other. Where do where do we go? I don't I don't know. I, I'm I'm really I thought I was here to shoot down your ideas, <laughs> not necessarily to come up with them on my own. Um Oh. All right. Okay. Okay. But how, about, case, how about we think about how about okay? I'll, I'll help a little bit. How about we think about the the pieces of that that you just described? Like, in, if we have to have paleolimnology, we need to have limnology first, do we not? So, so what about that? Where do we where do we get from that idea? Yeah. No, I think that's a fair point. So, paleomnology is a subdiscipline of limnology along with some sedimentary processes and other things related to sedimentation. And limnology, in turn, is built on various strands of physics, chemistry, and biology. Um, yeah. I think we're just going to say, fuck it. For the purposes of establishing a relevant starting point, we've got to go back to the beginning of modern science. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Working backwards isn't working. Let's work forwards, and we'll start. Okay, that, that's that's a good idea. We so we know before 1967, probably a, a fair bit before that, and after 10,000 years ago, and since 10,000. Okay, so we got a, we got a bit of time. We need to we need to fill in there. Um, but, right. we, but that's a start. We got to start somewhere. So a new place to start. How about we like jump you know through you know in the middle ages medieval times kind of into the renaissance period when science was kind of starting when we're getting into the real conflicts with you know the literal literal interpretations of the bible and the authority of the church because we've got a figure that we can start with and point to as like the father of science in many ways modern science for sure yeah I, I, I don't, you know, there were certainly ancient Greek classical thinkers who were thinking in the realms of science, but modern science, if we are to, I don't think paleognology can be older than modern science. So it, we can't go beyond or earlier than Galileo uh, in the 1610s, something like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense in terms of, okay, we've got a starting point, you know. Establishing that the Earth is not the center of the universe is like a good diversion from many of the things that had been established beforehand, and it allows sure. us to put a marker on the timeline. We and yeah. going forward, and we can like do some like bouncing in and out 
construct a timeline of some of the key figures, if you were to follow the strands along, that contributed to paleo in many ways. And not only that, after 1610, they come fast and furious, relatively speaking. So if there was nearly 10,000 years uh, from caveman scientist to uh, the modern Renaissance period in Europe, and, and depending on the, the the science, there were other things that had happened before that, you know, um, astronomy, well, and algebra, and mathematics, and all those things. In terms of science, I mean, like modern science did not necessarily begin in Europe. There were a lot of people, but from the formation of the limnology that we're trying to to nail down, that's a good place to start and move forward. And and we won't have to go very far forward before we start to get into some things that are going to start to look kind of paleolimnology like. So then, um, so Galileo should be familiar to most people who've done any study of science, even at the high school level. Um, he basically pointed his telescope at Jupiter, observed the moons, and for some of like the conclusions he drew from that, he ended up in house arrest for pretty much the rest of his life due to pushing for back being a against. Heretic. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know that the sun was actually um, uh, this. You know the Earth was orbiting the sun rather than the other way around, um, and so that was in the 1610s. Um, so we go a little bit further, another name that jumps out, um, you know, when we're constructing one of these tame, uh, timelines um, would be the first person to really think of the concept of stratigraphy. Yeah. And, and this might be a name that people are not as familiar with the person, but the ideas, absolutely. So uh, Nicholas Steno would be uh, how I would pronounce it. Um came up with some of the the principles that whether you think about it or not if you are a practicing paleolimnologist these are at the core well, or uh, really a, geo a geologist or geographer uh, are at the core of what we do all the time the three laws or rules of stratigraphy and they came around in the late 1600s in 1669 or around there and that's uh that's foundational for everything that we we think about yeah and some of these seem very obvious now but it took someone to write them down and establish them and you know make them obvious to everybody else yeah so and, and imagine the time position yeah imagining the time period that these were you know someone who only 50 years earlier said that mm, maybe we're not all the planets are and the sun are revolving around us and then you're starting to get into fairly detailed geological concepts like as Adam just said, and I cut him off, sorry, uh, the principle of super or the law of superposition, which is the, the foundational so one of, of paleolimnology. Which is the old, older stuff is overlain by newer stuff. So basically yeah. uh, the act of sedimentation, as you go further down into the sediments, you go further back in time. Um, and so, yeah, so that in terms of being uh, something written down that can be traced back to goes back to the 1660s. And the and the other two laws that uh, Steno put down for stratigraphy uh, may not seem as uh, important if you study recent sediments, but if you're studying old sediments uh, from a geological perspective, which was found before people started to take recent sediment cores, was the way many people and most people study lake sediments are critical as well. The idea of original horizontality, 
where everything was originally laid down in a flat manner. And then if it's uh, uplifted and changed its shape, that's uh, a process that's occurred since. And then lateral continuity, meaning that sediments that are all de uh, deposited in one event or in an event uh, series are going to match up in different locations, even if there are breaks, changes in the horizontality, et cetera. So they're, they're all really important concepts that uh, are still, well, I, I talk about these in my classes every year. Okay. So then somewhat parallel to that, uh, or like at least in terms of timing, we'd have Antoni von Leeuwenhoek, who'd be the uh, father of microbiology, who I definitely remember first reading about in like grade nine or 10 science. Yeah, and for he sure. Was the, the first person um, to basically use, you know, lenses to look at small things, like very small things. So he was looking at, um, I think it was pond water and looking at the small single-celled organisms and whatnot uh, mm -hmm. floating around and swimming around um, in just samples of water that he, um, that he collected from near his house, equivalently. And... Uh, refer to them as little animalcules. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think he wrote that in a series of letters and diagrams and, and whatnot that date back to the 1670s. Yeah. I think it's suggested that the, his animalcules were probably rotifers as mm -hmm. the like biological group that they belong to. Yeah. I don't know if he was the very first person to come up with the mic, like the idea of the microscope. I'm not sure about that, but certainly the one who, applied it to anything related to limnology that i'm aware of and uh and if if not the first then very early and the ones that we think about one and in a lot of the you know it's the first one that recorded it i guess in a yeah. way that people can trace it back uh, uh in terms of historically and then i think it's, this is kind of um uh in many ways, uh, reminiscent when we're looking at the environmental movement of like kind of thinking of the timeline and not really realizing how all, all these things fit together in terms of, you know, the multiple threads. Um, but I think it's interesting that, you know, so um, geology is starting, if we point to 1669 for Nicholas Stino, uh, microbiology kind of beginning in the 1670s and classical uh uh, mechanics um, being written down and published by Sir Isaac Newton in the 1680s. So, like within like 20 years, like those are like kind of foundational text slash yep. studies aspects of three very disparate uh, but major elements of sciences and and disparate geographically from Italy to uh, the Netherlands to uh, England. Yeah, all, all over Europe. Coming out of the, you know, coming out during the Renaissance, coming out of the, whatever, Middle Ages, uh, people were writing down critical ideas that, that uh, just hadn't been explored for, for uh, thousands of years in some cases, or at all. Yeah, it's unbelievable to think of the, the time period that must have been at the same time that all of the that they were many well i don't know that newton was thought to be heretical but a lot of these ideas were thought to be very 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 uh strange compared to the the canon at the time uh yeah and um i can remember not i'm still a little ways away from um um 
you know, a couple of the big ones in terms of really pushing back about, uh, you know, what, what was described in the Bible. But um, the next name on, on my list would be Linnaeus. Sure, for sure. So we're talking Can't about name Linnaeus. a diatom if you don't know how to, how to call it anything. Exactly. They'd all um, just be animalcules one. Animalcule two. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Taxonomy. And my one and my two might be different from your one and well, your exactly. two. Well, exactly. Well, exactly the problem. So, so I was trying to, uh, so, so the, the systemization of taxonomy, I guess. Mm-hmm. And what I found was interesting when I was looking it up um, in terms of binomial nomenclature for animals, uh, it, it uh, was, kind of shows up in the 10th edition of his Systema Naturae in 1758. So what, what was in the first nine editions? What was so well, interesting in those first, I mean, I, I, what I would give for a, a even <laughs> even ninth edition of one yeah. of Linnaeus's books, <laughs> yeah. that would be kept under glass. But uh, something obviously was in there that he was publishing many, many editions or, uh, or what? Yeah, but it was like the 10th one where the binomial nomenclature for of animals was apparently introduced, and that's the one that was the most Took off. Mo- most uh, important, I guess, or high profile of his writings. So I mean, I guess he probably he probably went back and renamed in his new system. I, I would imagine those are documentations of the things he had seen, and because he was such a, a category. Uh, um, cataloger of things that he saw in his travels. So probably nine plus books of all the things uh, he encountered. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, it's definitely an evolutionary. Um, that hadn't come around yet. We, yeah. No, I know. But you know what I'm getting at. Um, uh, progression through those editions. But it's kind of interesting that it was the 10th one. It's like yeah, for sure. the big deal. Um, and then... Uh, there was a name that I was not familiar with at all um, um, prior to doing a little bit of reading. I'm sure I may have heard of it in high school, but chemistry, modern chemistry, begins really in the 1770s with, oh man, we're butchering so many of these names, but uh, Antoine Laurent de Lavoisier. That was um, very, very good, I think. Um, and he, at least according to his Wikipedia page, when you look at like the, his contributions uh, to it's the a, field of chemistry, it's, it's a long one. Yeah, <laughs> for a na- again, in in the same way that every not everyone, but the vast majority of people know who Isaac Newton was, or uh, many people know who Linnaeus was, and and well, revolutionary in terms of his impact. Uh, it, it, you know, coming up with how we name species is a fairly small idea whereas uh de lavoisier i i I couldn't even believe the number of uh different contributions broadly across chemistry that are fundamental to modern chemistry that he uh spearheaded and did himself probably with students and all those things but still unbelievable just the productivity I, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. So he is um, large, one of the key figures that pushed um, it from a qualitative to a real quantitative one. Uh, he helped construct the metric system. Uh, he's noted for his discovery of 
how important oxygen is in combustion because he recognized and named oxygen and hydrogen. Um, he wrote the first extensive list of elements, so like a precursor to the periodic table, um, and reformed chemical nomenclature in many ways, the same way that uh, Linnaeus did with uh, biological nomenclature. And he um, lived in the, when was he working? When were these main changes? Obviously after Linnaeus, because we're going chronologically. But. Yeah, uh, through the 1770s and 1780s. Wow. So not long after. Not long after. And uh, he did a lot because he um, made all these contributions, but only lived to the tender age of 50. Hmm. There you go. So there we have the start of modern chemistry. Yeah, so we've so we've talked about chemistry, physics. Biology hasn't had its its grand moment, though everyone knows it's coming, obviously, on our list. Uh, but some foray into it. Uh, and then we've talked a little bit about geology, but not in the sense of sort of that foundational start of geology. Those ideas of stratigraphy are really, really important in the laying down of sediments, but sort of the, the father of everyone gets the father of, uh, moniker, but James Hutton, uh, in the late 18, uh, 18th century. Yeah. The 1700s, um, is considered sort of the father of modern geology. Uh, and then I think there are a few people who kind of get that name thrown about, uh, for them, but, uh, was one of the ideas that is, allowed would allow you to push into this 10,000 year period you know before that the idea of deep time just really didn't exist there was no one even even the most advanced scientific minds on all of these topics were putting it in the framework of a young earth and the idea of deep time was only something that came around at that point based on his his ideas and it's interesting when you think of like a lot of contemporaries um i guess uh earlier than that in the 1780s but a lot of the pushback would be coming from individuals that were really looking for evidence of like a great flood that shaped the earth you know based and in terms of you know basing the age of the earth in reference to noah's ark for example whereas hutton was the one to go no well maybe you know if we look at all these strata um Fossils that we don't find anymore, extinction, uh, changing climate, all of those things. You know, maybe Genesis might not be a historical record. Or a literal one, at least. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's a good point. Because I I imagine a great many of the people on this list would would be trying to reconcile those two things. Oh, for sure. And 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 maybe not doing such a good job. And struggling in many ways because... uh, um, yeah, their their work was basically undermining their faith in a lot of cases. Yeah, and they they were scientists and everything you know, that they the, had been taught. Yeah, and at the broadest sense, they were uh, swayed by evidence, and the evidence said that what you know was taught broadly uh, might not be the case, and therefore they came up with new theories to explain it. And that's it. There's the process done. You get deep time. <laughs> <laughs> Easy for me to say, sitting here in uh, 2020. Yeah, and so we're like, what, two hundred, almost 250 years later. Um, and it's not universally accepted. No, no. You know, so it's still not there. And I guess, you know, it's gone from, which 
which side of the scale is the heretical one, I guess, in many ways. Um, but uh, consensus has not yet been reached and probably won't be in our time. And continuing with that in terms of, you know. Yeah, that's a good segue, actually. To the um, most vilified single person <laughs> on, on that topic. One C. Darwin. Well, to this day, although, you know, he was not placed on a house arrest for his entire life. No, that's true. You know, you know, by like, you know, inquisitors. Yeah. Victorian but, England was a slightly different place from uh, Italy in the six, early 1600s. And uh, to his not the name yet, referring to Charles Darwin, um, whose seminal work uh, on the origin of species was published in 1859. And not, that not that well cited as we've, uh, we've explored, yeah. but, uh, yeah. And he does not have a uh, verified email address no. to link his uh, publication record to. Um, and the book is largely based on his observation observations made while he was, um, on the ship, the is it HMS Beagle. Yeah. There's one. Uh, well, you, I, I know this is a, uh, not a video podcast, but I have a, a model of it on the shelf behind me. Uh, How much earlier was because he the voyages took place while he was a young man and he published it as an old man. What, yeah, what were the actual uh, voyages of the Beagle that were like the relevant voyages of the Beagle? 1831. Okay. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so there and we're up to the 1850s on this timeline and we're now at kind of the I don't know if the beginnings, but like a huge kind of um sea change in terms of biology and yeah we, like, we had a, a a big gap there the from 1785 to 1859 that's sort of the revolution you know the revolution in uh, france and the american revolution had just ended and there were a lot of societal changes in uh, in that time period and just the same way we were talking about the conservation movement and when you go into these big political and and military upheavals and that sort of thing and the napoleonic period is all through that time period um, these things kind of fall away a little bit. It's hard to do science when armies are storming across Europe, uh, getting into pitched battles. So it, I'm sure we've missed important figures in that almost a hundred year oh. time period. Oh, but uh, but from the story, you know, it, when you get back into it, and whether you say the beginning of Darwin's time period, the early 1830s, which would also be the time that some of the people that really influenced him, like Lyle and some of the other, particularly geologists, were were working. Uh, after that, you know, it's only 170 years, and and you're you're right where we are here. So we, it comes really quickly at that point. Yeah, like uh, I'm over here, 20 years past the Human Genome Project, so within 140 yeah. years yeah, exactly. from the theory of evolution to the mapping of the human genome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think another thing that's interesting. Yeah. It's a yeah. staggering time frame. Yeah. A, uh, another kind of interesting tidbit to all this is in terms of uh, the hesitancy to publish um, because uh, they were so uh, provocative, these ideas, too, in, even in the midst of these societal changes. Um, so, like, I think the idea of evolution had been stewing within Darwin for decades but he was prompted to publish 
after reading uh, some work for a young scientist named Wallace, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I've got these. Yeah, he almost got oh, scooped. you're going to scoop me. You're going to scoop me. It's a much bigger name. that with. Decided to co-publish them at the Royal Society. And, uh, you know, he's the one who's, I mean, not that Alfred Russell Wallace isn't well known, but uh, he's not a household name for, for many people. So, interesting. I mean, you compare that, though, with, I'm um, going to go off the list and throw out uh, Copernicus here, who also um, um, was a key figure in establishing like the heliocentric nature of the solar system. I'm pretty sure that, you know, all of his stuff, you know, was sealed and not to be published or released with anyone until after his death. Yeah. Because he just didn't want to deal with the, um, the, the consequences uh, that would come from the spreading of these ideas. Well, they knew, they knew how controversial their, their topics were in their own time and how, how much, and I don't know whether it's upheaval or just discussion would come from it, that, uh, that it was going to, going to cause changes. So we're at Darwin. Okay. So it's probably post Darwin. I think we're, if we're getting as paleo language, we're getting closer now. Getting closer and closer. So I guess, um, within a hundred years time window now, I guess very close. So we get into like the founding of limnology itself. Oh, here we go. Perfect. So the, the study of, uh, fresh waters, um, could be potentially dated, uh, into the 1890s, uh, and like a starting point of like the study of Lake Geneva, um, done by Francois Fonce Forel. Right. So if you go to Sill's website, the Society of International Limnology, this is where they start their story. The, the work of Farrell to, to put all of his energy into studying Lake Geneva and, and the, the big lakes in, in France and Switzerland. And yeah, so jumping ahead a little bit. So SIL, so we'd go from his work to his work um, in terms of the founding of SIL. That wouldn't happen until the 1920s. But still staying in the late 1800s, uh, um, radioactivity was discovered in the 1890s. That is kind of important uh, in terms of paleolimnology um, for things like dating, which are uh, uh, critical. And that was um, discovered by Henry Becquerel. Henry. Oh, so, so, oh, I've been, I've been trying with these names. It's not Henry. Henri Becquerel. Know. Hank. I'm going to guess no. And go by Hank Becquerel. Okay. Uh, but that's a term that, that, again, many people know the unit. Because Becquerel's is a scientific, uh, the SI unit for radioactivity. Um, but, and, and obviously, you know, they're all people, they're named after people, but, uh, it shouldn't, and so it shouldn't be surprising, but, um, yeah, 1896, that's not that long ago. Um, and this, this comes up fairly often, uh, or at least, um, when you think of like the acid rain debates, um, in terms of things that are not that old, um, the idea of the pH function as a measure of acidity, um, you know, didn't first emerge until 1909, so just a little bit more than 100 years ago. Um, um, and it was the work of Soren, Soren Sorensen. Um, and and I, don't, the, I don't actually know anything about about him. And uh, 
what his background would have been that that he came up was a mathematician. I mean, it's a logarithmic scale, so you get this kind of idea as a chemist. Um, but it is certainly important for a lot of the modern, well, just studying limnology. If you can't, it's hard to think of a uh, chemical analysis that you carry out more fundamental than pH. Um, and from a paleo perspective, a lot of the the things we've talked about and probably we'll talk about in the future on whatever part three or twelve of this uh, story will. Uh, we'll deal with that too. So that I think that's a good point. Yeah. And um, yeah. And sort of like was first, like as an idea developed in 1909 and published, but the modern pH function as we know it today um, was only um, finalized in 1924. So not even a hundred years ago. So again, that's something, you know, that's interesting to keep in mind when you're looking at like, pH transfer functions established going back hundreds of years is it's the only way you could get those measurements because the measurement itself was only developed less than 100 years ago. Yeah, exactly. No long-term, well, there's, there's probably no pH measurements from Lake Geneva in the 1890s when Pharrell was first doing his work was probably, I, I don't really know a lot about the background there, but I imagine it's more biological than uh, chemical in its nature. So there we go. We have uh, not quite. We've got one up. last stop on our, our list of uh, grand old men. Um, yeah, it's all men. Be, of course, you know, looking at the time period that we're looking at, of it's that is not very surprising. Um, um, and it would be G. G. Evelyn Hutchinson as the father of ecology, and I'm going to put like a um, date for his seminal works, at least in regards to our discussion today, would be the Treatise on Limnology, published in 1957. Yep, which is a series of books that have uh, all sorts of detail about the physical, chemical, and biological processes occurring in inland waters. And uh, uh, I, I've never flipped through a full version of them, but they are fundamental to everything that you need in order to think about paleolimnology. So there we go, 1957 with Hutchinson. And Hutchinson we'll talk about, I guess, in the future because he weaves his way in and out of this story a bunch of times through primarily how prolific of a uh, supervisor of uh, graduate students he was, but uh, can tie to a big number of, uh, a large number of the people who definitely call themselves paleolimnologists. Yeah. And so, yeah, 1957. And so within 10 years of the Treatise of Limnology being published, we had the, there was the first meeting of the international, or I'm not sure it was called it then, but what would become known as the International Paleolimnology Association. Mm -hmm. a, a meeting of people thinking about that sort of thing. So there we go. We've narrowed it down from 10,000 to 10 years. And we have a small window that we need to, to well, we'll never be able to, to put a, a point on. Um, but that's not bad. And interestingly, that's that's pretty, you know, pretty recent. Yeah, no, it's very recent. Um, and, you know, like so many things really, it's like cultural, like the, in the aftermath of World War II, development of universities, like it's all, in many ways, everything on this list is very societal in many ways. Um, and, uh, yeah, 
So I think that's a pretty good timeline to go from, you know, the development of modern science through to the subdiscipline of paleoimmunology with like a bit of a greatest hits list in, in terms of key contributions and there's some of the giants um, uh, that many, many other people have stood on the shoulders of to get where we are today. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I, I think that's an interesting history and, and to think about, you know, not only is it sort of a search for all of these different uh search for this definition this time period but it is a bit of a weaving through of all the bits that go into this synthetic science um yeah but i think you know like kind of like skip through the elder days is a uh, um a pretty good place to end part one i agreed yeah uh if if not this will be a three-hour uh journey and uh, i like the 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 lord of the rings reference there that was nice and um yeah. And so where do we go from here? Well, eventually, we, uh, I guess in the next episode, we'll go taking a look at, I'm not sure at what point we'll run into someone that actually described themselves as a paleolimnologist. Yeah. I think the next episode, in, and I think the next episode is probably, that was a good place to, this is a good place to, to end for the day. Because uh, it does get a little muddy to bring the pun in. <laughs> After that, because a lot of things start happening all at once in different locations, particularly on different continents. You know, there's lots of people working in um, England and in Scandinavia and in uh, mainland Europe and in the North America, all working on similar things. So we're going to have to kind of try and keep those all in check as we start to weave in the, the history of the paleolimnologists, as it were. Sounds good. Sounds good for a future uh, future day. In a couple of weeks, we will we will continue on with this story and see. Uh, um, yeah, see if we can add, we can build upon uh, John Slydeck uh, a little bit more. Well, I think it'll be interesting for for maybe um, people who don't know who haven't seen that talk because a lot of the names we've we've just listed off are, are you know we've gone through a, a pretty much a Wikipedia surf as we always do. Uh, but as we get into some of the other names moving forward, they probably won't be as well documented online because they'll have a little more, I don't want to say niche, but a, a smaller impact on one science as opposed to, you know, the, the Newtons and the Darwins of the, of the world. So uh, there may be a little bit in there that uh, that's new to some listeners. And if you have any kind of questions or comments or people we've, missed that no because i'm sure there are many that could fit into this uh this framework you can reach us by a number of different methods the easiest one is on twitter at core ideas paleo p-a-l-e-o and we will happily try and have a better discussion about social media which <laughs> uh based on our last episode or two episodes ago now um we're still working on it, guys. Still working on our Twitter. But absolutely, we've missed many people today. Um, just trying, trying to make a list that, of things that popped out to us. But if you want to challenge us on any of this and say, you know, your, I don't know how many how many names are on that list. Your, you know, five round more Rushmore's of, uh, you know, foundational paleo scientists um, is missing X. Come at us. Send us yeah. some memes. Yeah, for We'd sure. We'd love to hear it. Definitely. 
Uh, or if you want to, you know, write a very long reason behind that, that doesn't fit into the Twitter direct message or tweet framework. You can shoot us an email. I don't believe there was anything in the, in the mailbag this week. Unfortunately. Let me check for a second. Okay, good. There was nothing in the mailbag. Um, but if you do want to send us something so that one day there will be something in the mailbag, uh, you can write to us at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. But really, Twitter, Twitter is the place to be for, for us. It's the home of uh, Psycom in many ways. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and if there's nothing else, uh, we look forward to continuing on with this story. It's, it's our first multi-parter, which is nice. Something yeah, new. Making a bit of an awkward way to end because we're not really at the ending. No. So until uh, next time, dear listeners. Until next time, dear listeners. Take care. Stay safe out there. And uh, catch you then. Mm-hmm.